0: Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Centre Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Welcome to all of you here at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are watching online and all of you who are meeting together at one of our regionals in Airdrie, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and... In Northwest Calgary. Well, we're in a series on work and what the Bible has to say about work. And I want to start out by having you turn to the person next to you and tell them about the worst job you ever had. If you don't know the person, introduce yourself. You might meet a friend for life. So go ahead. All right, well, I'd love to hear what some of them are, but, um, you know, if, the, if your present job is the worst job you ever had, you may want to keep your voice down just a little bit, because your boss may have shown up, might hear you, and uh, so I won't have you share your worst job, but I, I did um, go on the internet, and oh boy, did I find some doozies. Um, like, how about this one, a cat food quality tester? which involves tasting cat food to ensure it is fresh and delicious. Now there's a job to die for. Oh my goodness. Another one is a manure inspector, which involves checking manure for contaminants like E. coli and salmonella. Or how about a deodorant tester, which requires you to spend your day, and this is truth. I've got pictures of this. Uh, uh, Spend your day smelling a subject's underarms and comparing the results with other subjects. You know, anything for a good deodorant. And you thought you had a bad job. Now the reality is while some of us love our jobs or at least are relatively happy or content with our work, research tells us that most of us are not very happy with our jobs. We asked Calgarians why they believe that most people aren't all that happy with their work, and here is what they said. So tell me what you do for a living. I'm a psychologist. Uh, I'm a lawyer. Uh, I'm an accountant. Um, I'm an admin assistant. I work for myself. I'm in law school. I work for Second Cup. I'm an IT guy. You think most people enjoy their work yeah um, I don't know I wouldn't say most people mm-hmm. I think people find it pretty stressful I, I would say that most people do not enjoy their work I think there's only very few mm-hmm. percentage of people that truly love their job I think that's mm-hmm. tough to find to be honest do you think most people like their job uh, no probably not no I <laughs> know uh, I hope so but no I think half people love what they're doing, and I think the other half is probably just doing it to make money. Some people that have kind of like found their niche and really enjoy their job and feel like it's contributing to God's work and God's redemption, that's the reformed answer, thank you. <laughs> Do you think most people like their job? I'd say probably not. Why do you think they don't like it? They didn't pick something they're passionate about. Why do you think people don't like their job? Um, Maybe because it's not very satisfying for them, and. Mm-hmm. They don't get a lot of control over their work. People they work with, what they get paid, their bosses, maybe not the line of work that they thought it was going to be. Uh, underpaid It's not what I want to do for a living. What do you want to do for a living? I don't know. I'm one of those. <laughs> I think people have a tendency to, to want to do something else, something greater. They feel they're not matching their potential. We all have uh, dreams and things that we wanted to, to do as a kid, but like they said, life gets in the way. But. I mean, in the back of your mind, it's still there. Um, We kind of always want what we don't have. So this small sample of Calgarians seem to agree with the research that most people see work as a necessary evil, something you have to endure to have the means to do what you really want to do in life. And this is truly sad, not only because we spend nearly 40% of our entire life working, but also because this is not what God intended work to be. The Bible spells out several truths concerning work. As we learned in last week's message, the first truth that we see in Scripture concerning work is that God has a plan for work. God's plan for work involves three principles. The first principle is this. Work originates with God. In the very first verse of the Bible, we're introduced to God, and we find him creating or working. God sees work as a very good thing, and God is still working today. And Jesus says, my Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too Am working. The second principle of God's plan is this. God calls us to join him in his work. I know some of you really don't want to hear this, but God never intended for us to sh- uh, sit in the sh- shade and live a life of leisure even after we retire. Oh, he wants us to take time for leisure and recreation and rest even as he rested. Um, After creating the universe, but it's for a purpose. And that is to be refreshed, to be replenished, so that we can get back to the work that God has called us to do. You see, God calls us to be his co-workers. He made us in his image, and in doing so, he designed us to work. He gave us abilities, skills, physical strength, Intelligent minds that can reason, imagine, and create. All for the purpose of helping him take care of the earth and to help others. A third principle of God's plan is this. All work matters to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Our highest calling is to glorify God in all that we do, and that includes our work. All work matters to God. Now, I remind you, when I use the word work in this little mini-series, I'm not just referring to being employed in a nine-to-five job. I'm referring to the homemaker who manages a family in a home. I'm referring to a student who studies or a volunteer who gives hours of service to the church or to the community. All of these are work. And all moral and honest work is valuable to God. Because regardless of how significant or insignificant uh, our work may seem to other people in God's eyes, they are a valuable part of his greater plan to take care of the world that he created, and in particular, to reveal his reality, his love, and his desire to be in relationship with all of us. And so the very first major truth that we see in Scripture about work is that God has a plan for work. The second major truth that we see in the scripture regarding work is this. Sin destroyed God's plan for work. God had a wonderful plan for work. He intended to be a gift and a blessing, and yet this is not how we experience work, is it? Work is often difficult, painful, frustrating, and just plain hard. Clearly something has gone wrong with work. Some would say it's low salaries, or poor working conditions, mean and unreasonable bosses, or meaningless tasks. And of course all of these are part of the problem, but the Bible points to something much deeper. The Bible teaches that sin did a number on work. want you to open your Bibles again to Genesis. And just keep it open in the book of Genesis because we're going to be looking at several chapters out of Genesis. Starting out with Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God put Adam and Eve in a garden paradise and intended for work to be an inspiring pleasure, not a frustrating pain. You look at Genesis 2 verse 17, we're told there that our first parents... um, Uh, they were told by God that they could enjoy the fruit of every tree in the garden except one. And God warned them that if they disobeyed him and ate of that particular tree, they would surely die. In giving them this test, God was giving them the opportunity to make choices, to exercise their freedom. They were free to trust and obey God, they were also free to reject God. Well, in chapter three, if you turn over there, we have the account of how Adam and Eve did what we have all done at some point in our own life. And that is, they used their God given freedom to say no to God. You see, that is what sin is it's that rebellious spirit inside of you that says no. I'm doing it my way, not your way. And because of this sin of rebellion against God, a separation occurred between God and man. A spiritual death occurred within man, resulting in a broken and a troubled world. A world that's filled with selfishness and injustice. That's filled with sickness and death. With natural disasters and chaos. All of creation was affected, including work. Now make no mistake, despite the fall of man, work still retains some of its original beauty. It can still be a source of great joy and fulfillment. But even when it is good, it is broken. It is tainted. Work has negatively has been negatively impacted because of sin. To begin with, sin made work a struggle. Turn over to Genesis 3.17. Here we find a description of some of the consequences of our first parents' rebellion against God. This is what we read there. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through pain and toil... You will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. This passage tells us because of man's rebellion, the ground is cursed. It produces thorns and thistles and will therefore require painful toil to produce food from it. In other words, whereas before the fall, work was done in partnership with God in a perfect environment, now we have weeds to contend with. We have to endure extreme heat and cold and we have to figure things out for ourselves. And so work is a struggle now because sin made work harder, more painful, more tiring. Furthermore, work is a struggle now because sin uh, brought conflict and hurt into relationships, including uh, the workplace. Think about how much better your work environment would be if it wasn't for the selfishness and the conflicts that erupt there from time to time. Work is a struggle now because sin made work more frustrating. For example, let's say that you're, a gifted, and, you're gifted and trained in a, in a certain field of endeavor. But you can't find full-time work in that area. Either because of a poor economy or because there just simply isn't a demand for your line of work. That's one of the frustrations that makes work a struggle. Or let's say you plant a beautiful crop or garden but frost or grasshoppers destroy all your work and all that you've invested in it. Or you paint a beautiful portrait. Or let's say you invest hundreds of hours fixing a problem or developing an amazing strategy that will benefit others significantly and maybe even benefit your company significantly, but no one notices. No one even acknowledges your work, much less rewards you for it. You see, these are just some of the examples of how sin has made work a struggle. And secondly, sin made work futile. In Genesis 3.19, God said this to Adam. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust You will return. This verse reminds us that sin brought the curse of death into the world, making work futile, if you think about it. King Solomon, he saw the futility of work in his life. He denied himself nothing. His professional success, his wealth, was greater than all of that of his contemporaries. And yet he knew that one day he would die and he'd leave it all behind. Ecclesiastes 2, he writes this, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything is meaningless a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You know, the Rolling Stones essentially said the same thing years ago in their classic, I can't get no satisfaction, but I try and I try, and I try. The author of Ecclesiastes, he tried to find meaning through work, hard work. But in the end, he concluded that work and the wealth and the prestige that work can bring cannot by itself deliver a meaningful life. You know, we all want to uh, make some kind of impact through our lives and through our work. But the reality is, All the results of our work will one day be wiped away by history and be forgotten. The writer of Ecclesiastes talks about those who come behind us, can change everything we've done, can undo everything we've done, go in a totally different direction. That's why he says it's all futile. And so we see that sin made work a struggle. And work also is futile. Thirdly, sin turned work into an idol. One of the temptations we face in this fallen world is to make our work the basis of our meaning and our identity in life. Our identity and meaning come to us in one of two ways. We either find our identity and our meaning in who God says we are, or we make. We try to make our identity and meaning through what we do. If we try to construct our own identity and meaning in life through our work, work gets distorted because it becomes all about me, about my success, about my fulfillment, and how I'm perceived by other people. In Genesis 11, we read the story of the building of the Tower of Babel. In verse 4, we read that the primary reason they wanted to build this magnificent wonder of the world in that day was, and I quote, so that we may make a name for ourselves. The motivation that these ancient people had for building this magnificent tower is the same motivation that many people today have for doing their work. To make a name for themselves. Which if you look at it carefully is nothing more than pride. It is to justify their value by comparing themselves with others and to show everyone how gifted they are how special they are, in comparison to others. And unfortunately, this same spirit of competitive pride exists today, in all lines of work, and it is lethal to work. Tim Keller points out that many college students do not choose work that actually fits their abilities, their talents, their capacities, and their passions. But rather, many choose work that in their minds boosts their self-image. One young man explained it this way. I realized that if I stayed in education, I'd be embarrassed when I got to my five-year college reunion. And so now, I'm going to law school. In short, whereas our grandparents, at least my grandparents' generation they were just happy to have a job. They were deliriously happy to have work in order to provide for their family, regardless of what the work was. Most of the emerging generation today, according to the research, they have this bottom line expectation that their job has to be fulfilling, first of all, but they want more than that. They want the job to pay really well and a job that gives them status in the eyes of others, makes their parents proud of them. C.S. Lewis describes the problem of pride this way. Now, what I want you to get clear, he writes, is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. Pride, you see, which is really at the heart of all sin is putting yourself at the center of the universe rather than God. It is attempting to form my identity and construct my meaning of life, in life, through what I achieve, through what I do. That which wins the applause of other people. And it is this mindset which leads to idolatry, the idolatry of work. If work is about creating identity and meaning for yourself, then work is going to become everything to you. You're going to be obsessed with it. You are going to worship it as your idol. You, and, and that's going to result in overwork. That's going to result in you being anxious and stressed and afraid and insecure in your work because it means everything to you. It's your God. You know, someone... Defined insecurity as discovering on the first day of your new job that your name is written on the door of your office in chalk and there is a wet sponge hanging next to it. You know, folks, what I'm saying is this is as far as work will take you apart from God. Yes, it will produce some benefits and satisfaction, but because of sin, it will also involve toil, sweat, hard work, and frustration. And if you factor God out of the equation, you will battle constantly with feelings of anxiety and fear and insecurity. And like King Solomon, you'll have this sense that your work is futile, that everything is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. So, is there any hope? Absolutely yes. And that hope is found in the third major truth that we see in the scripture concerning work, which is this Jesus Christ brought meaning back to work. You see, when Jesus died on the cross on our behalf to pay for our sins, He provided a way not only for us to live eternally with God in heaven, as wonderful as that is, he also provided a way for God to become central in our lives. For God to become central in our relationships and for God to become central in our work. When it comes to work, God does not remove the curse and its painful, sweaty toil, but He does replace the meaninglessness of it all. He replaces the struggle we talked about. He replaces the futility we talked about. He replaces the idolatry that we talked about. Let me just unpack that a little bit. First of all, God replaces the struggle of work with His perspective his eternal perspective. In Colossians 3.23, we read this. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is addressing slaves. Now make no mistake, he is not condoning slavery. He is simply recognizing it as a reality in that day. In fact, there are numerous passages in the Bible that were used by God's people down through history to actually bring an end to slavery. Don't forget that Christ's mission was not to start a bloody revolution against the ruling authorities of that day. No, his mission was to bring a revolution of the heart knowing that as people's hearts are transformed by God's love in time, those people will begin to change what's wrong with the world. Now with that in mind, I think I can safely say that if anyone had reason to despise their work, if anyone had reason to resent their bosses and feel demeaned, overworked, and underpaid, it was the slaves of that day. And yet, Brian Wilkerson says the Apostle Paul didn't say, well, I know that you got a bum deal, but just do your job and and just stay out of trouble, okay? The Apostle Paul didn't say, well, do everything you can to make life miserable for your masters and to subvert the system. Neither did the Apostle Paul say, just do the bare minimum and save your energy for church work. No, he tells them to be the best workers that they possibly can be. He says in verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. But then I want you to notice that he adds this. As working for the Lord, not for human masters. You see, he replaces the struggle of our work with his eternal perspective that we, in the final analysis, are really working for him. He's saying, if you're a Christ follower, then your earthly boss isn't your real boss. No, God is the one that you're really working for. And you need to keep that perspective in mind, regardless of where you find yourself. It doesn't matter how much of a pain in the neck your boss is. It doesn't matter how hard your work is or how unappreciated you feel or how frustrated you are with your work environment or where it is you volunteer. Remember that you are doing it first and foremost for God. When you embrace God's perspective that you're working for him, it changes your attitude toward the struggles you're having with your work. For one, you realize that you are actually worshiping God through your daily work. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When we present our bodies as living sacrifices, In our life, in our work, we are actually worshiping God through our work. Brian Wilkerson says, worship isn't something we just do on Sunday like we just did together here a while back. No, it's something that we do on Monday. It isn't just something we do in a worship center like this. It is something we do in our classrooms, in our offices, in other workplaces, in other environments where we're volunteering. Now, of course, God is blessed when we sing praises to him with all of our heart. But he's also honored when no matter what it is we do at work, in our homes, or where it is we volunteer, that we do it with all of our hearts as an act of worship to God. And so you see, when you leave for work on Monday morning or you go to school or college or you go to volunteer uh, in some way, you would be correct in saying to your loved ones as you walk through the front door, see you later, I'm off to worship because that in fact is what you're doing. Furthermore, when you embrace God's perspective, that you are working for him, not only do you realize that you're worshiping him through your work, but that he is actually working in you to transform you into the image of Jesus, to transform your character. Do any of you have a boss that drives you nuts? Oh good, I don't see any Center Street staff putting their hands up, that's good. They're probably just chicken, but anyways. (laughs) Have you ever considered that God can use all that's ugly about your work situation to transform your character and draw you closer to himself? Dallas Willard has said, The primary place that we are formed spiritually isn't in our quiet time with the Lord first thing in the morning which is good in itself, of course. No, he says, the primary places that we grow spiritually is in our closer relationships, like in our homes, our volunteer ministries, our schools, and in our workplaces. I mean, think about where do you really learn patience? Not so much from a sermon or even a book. No, you learn it through dealing with the guy that you work with five days a week who has a bad attitude and bad coffee breath most days. (laughs) Where do you learn servanthood? Not so much sitting in a Bible study, but giving parents a break, for example, by taking care of their kids for an evening. Or meeting yet again with that person from work who is struggling and talks your ear off but who desperately needs your friendship and your support. So if you find yourself asking, why is this such a tough place to work? Why do I have such a terrible boss? Remember that you are working for God, not that terrible boss. And while you're worshiping the Lord... Through your faithful work, he is transforming your character into the image of his son, Jesus. That's the first way that Jesus brings meaning back to work. He replaces the struggle we have with work with his perspective, his eternal perspective, that we're actually working for him. Furthermore, Jesus brings meaning back to work by replacing the futility of work with his call. When we by faith ask Jesus to forgive us and to invade our lives, he calls us to join him in the mission, the work that he's engaged in, which includes extending his grace and his love to the world with the hope of bringing all people back in right relationship to himself. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Through Christ, we have been reborn. We have been recreated for a specific purpose to do good works. We are called by God to be salt and light, to be His hands and feet and His voice in our world. As followers of Jesus, we may have different jobs, but you see, we all have the same calling. We may be stonemasons, accountants, mechanics, preachers, homemakers, church volunteers, but we are all called to serve Jesus. Which means there is no such thing as a nothing job. Because all honest work done for the Lord is sacred. On the other hand, all work done for the glory of self is going to burn in the end. Which means, for example, the Christian businessman who stockpiles everything he makes, spends his millions on himself, may be seen as successful in his work by other people, but he is a failure in the eyes of God because he didn't fulfill God's call on his life. On the other hand, the Christian Christian businessman who obeys the call of God on his life by being generous and investing heavily in God's kingdom may, because of that decision, not possess all the signs and the symbols of success, but he will be a huge success in the eyes of God. All that to say that when you include God in the picture, your work is not futile. It is not meaningless, as the writer of Ecclesiastes lamented. No, your work matters to God. God placed you where you are for a purpose, There are things only you can do. There are people only you can impact. Jesus brings meaning back to our work by replacing our struggle with work, with his eternal perspective. And he replaces the the futility of work with his calling. And finally, Jesus brings meaning back to our work by replacing Our idolizing of work with his love and acceptance. Not too long ago, Madonna said this in Vogue magazine, this is what my music is all about. Every time I accomplish something great, I feel like a special human being, but after a while I feel mediocre and uninteresting again, and I find I have to get past this again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. And I have to prove myself to others that I am somebody. So what is she saying? She's saying the only meaning she has in life comes from what she does. From proving to others through her music that she is somebody worthwhile. Can you imagine what a burden it must be to live that way? You see, when you look at your work or your volunteer ministry to become the basis of your identity and meaning, you are looking for something that only God can give you. When you try to construct your identity and meaning on the basis of your work or your volunteer ministry, work becomes your idol, your obsession, And with it, as I said a little earlier, comes everything that comes with that. Overwork and anxiety and fear and insecurity. And you are not going to be a happy camper. And you're not going to be much fun to be around either. However, when you put your faith and trust in the Lord and you believe Embrace, accept his grace, his love, and his acceptance for you. All that begins to change. Because in the same way that a gas engine is wired up to run best with gas rather than diesel, so we are wired up to function best when Jesus is at the center of our lives. Rather than work, rather than money rather than family, rather than anything else. Jesus says, your identity is no longer found in your work. It is found in me. If you surrender and put him at the center. The apostle Peter describes our identity in Christ this way. He says, but you are a chosen people. He's talking about the church here. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Jesus says, because of what I have done for you, you are a child of the living God. And then he basically says, therefore, stop working to bolster your self-esteem and your self-worth and to construct your own meaning in life. No, simply do your work for me. Friend, if you'd have to admit that your work has become your idol, if you're unhappy with your work, if you're anxious, if you're burdened with your work, frustrated with your work, I remind you that Jesus died to give you true rest, his rest. Not just the rest for our aching souls like when we take a day off, but rest for our aching, hurting, messed up hearts. In Hebrews 4.9 the writer puts it this way there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. In other words when you have the assurance that not only are you a child of God through faith in Christ, but that you are loved and accepted by the Lord, your soul is going to know true rest, the rest of God. And your work is going to become life-giving and not the source of hurt and pain, frustration, anxiety, insecurity, fear. Kevin Kim says, you will be set free from the burden of being seen as successful. The burden of needing to be one up on someone else. The burden of defining yourself by your position at work. The burden of having to prove your value and identity through your work. The gospel frees you from all of that because on the authority of Jesus and his eternal word, you know to the core of your being you already have the approval of the only one who really matters. And that is the Lord God Almighty. And as you rest in his approval, your work is going to be an act of worship to God and an expression of your love and your trust in him. I'll close with this. When I was a young boy, I distinctly remember hating to do things around the house for my mom. Every time she'd ask me to do something like take out the garbage or, or weed the garden or cut the grass, I would have a hissy fit. I also remember when my dad took me with him to work on the farm or in his construction business. And even though I enjoyed being with him, I didn't look forward to the dirt, the dust, the grease, the, the cold, the heat, and the hard work that I was ultimately called upon to do. It seemed to me like I was the only kid that I knew who had to work most every Friday evening, all day Saturday, and on every holiday there was. One day, I walked past my parents' room. The door was slightly ajar. And I noticed my mom on her knees praying with great emotion. And I stopped long enough just to listen in and discovered that she was praying for me. She was praying in German. So I didn't understand everything. But I understood enough that day to realize in a whole new way how much. I was loved by my mother. Sometime later, I was on the farm with Dad, and we had just finished the last of the harvest. There was a bushel or so of wheat on the back of the truck that we needed still to put in the granary. The trouble was the granary was completely full. And so to make room for the remaining grain, my dad asked if I'd crawl into this granary and push the wheat into the corners, which I proceeded to do. And while I was in there, I was in there maybe five, 10 minutes doing this, The wall, one of the walls broke out. And when the dust settled, my entire body was buried under the wall that broke out. In fact, all that you could see was my face. While all of this was going on, my dad yelled my name like I'd never heard him yell before. And when he heard my voice, he frantically made his his way over to where I was and he helped me get free. I'll never forget the tone of his voice, the look on his face, the tears of joy in his eyes when he found me alive. And that day, I realized in a whole new way how much I was loved by my father. You know, when you're growing up, You know that your parents love you, but those two incidences helped me to sense their love in a way that I never had before. Something new and deep registered inside for me. Those instances changed my attitude in a number of things, including work, and particularly my heart motivation for serving my parents. It was after those incidences that I I wanted to serve my parents. In fact, I looked for opportunities to serve them. I would go at least once a year and I would take everything out of the garage and clean out the garage and put everything back really neatly without being asked. It wasn't a duty anymore. It wasn't a task. It was a way for me to communicate my love and my gratitude back to my parents for their love for me. And you know, that is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you begin to grasp Christ's sacrificial love for you, it is going to change you at the core of your being. It's going to change your perspective. It's going to change your attitude toward all the things that God calls you to be and God calls you to do as a Christ follower, as a parent, as a child, as a spouse, and yes, as a worker. It will change your heart attitude toward your work because it won't just be a job that that you endure in order to get a paycheck. Instead, it will be a way for you to express your love and your gratitude to God for his incredible love and acceptance of you displayed on the cross at Calvary. And for the gift of his grace, the gift of life that he's given to you and continues to give you every moment of every day. In the words of Paul, your work, whether as a student or your place of employment, will be your spiritual act of worship to God. Would you stand for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for your amazing love demonstrated to us through the sacrificial death of your Son. Lord, I want to thank you for giving us dignity, for making us in your image, and for wanting to involve us in your kingdom work. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's still rejecting you, who's keeping you at arm's length in their lives. Lord, I pray that through our time together in your word that they will have come to see in a whole new way that that life, that work, in fact, everything is meaningless without you. May today be the day that they open up their lives to you and commit to following you as their savior and Lord. I pray for those who are struggling with their work situation, for those who are feeling unappreciated or maybe just feeling like they're putting in time. Oh Lord, I pray that you'd help them to keep doing the best that they can and to remember that they're doing it as unto you. I pray for those, Lord, who feel that they have a nothing job, who feel their volunteer ministry is insignificant. Oh Lord, encourage them today with your promise that their work matters to you, that you have placed them where they are for a reason. And that whatever they do in Jesus' name is not in vain. And then, Lord, I pray for anyone who is fearful, anxious, and burdened or frustrated with their work because they have made work or their volunteer ministry their idol. Oh, Lord, you died to free us from the burden of needing to prove ourselves through our work, through our success. So I pray that you would that that we would find true rest in you by surrendering our lives to you and seeking your approval only. And finally, Lord, I just pray that in all things we would do our work, whether it's paid or unpaid, to the best of our ability with love and sensitivity to others. And most importantly, as unto you, for your glory, and for the sake of those who need the Jesus that we know and love. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.